0: Get got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I've had a uh, refreshing four weeks of listening to other men preach, and now I get the chance to come back up and open God's Word for us um, uh, for the next several months. There'll be a little bit of a break in there at some point as well, but uh, excited to be back with you. I don't know if you're excited to have me back, but I'm excited to be back. Um, but Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be as we start a new series of messages today entitled, Follow Me. I want to read the text for us, and then we'll uh, make a few introductory comments, and then we'll jump into unpacking it together. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy in front of you to follow along. Luke writes these words, he says in verse 18, "'Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, "'Who do the crowd say that I am?' And they answer, "'John the Baptist,' but others say, Elijah, and others, "'that one of the prophets of old has risen.'" Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, 21 months ago, God led us to make a move as a church into this facility. We moved off of a retreat center property out south of Royce City here into the heart of fate into a growing community. And we moved, not because it was a more convenient location necessarily or because it had better amenities, but we moved with a mission. And the mission that we moved with was this, is that God would we wanted to see a gospel-centered church planted in the heart of this community that would do three things. It would share the gospel, have a clear and compelling gospel witness, that would shape disciples and see the character and convictions of men and women formed in the image of Jesus, and we would send missionaries into our neighborhoods and around the globe and as we moved into this area we moved with that mission and and as I've been thinking about our mission statement over the course of these last several months I've been thinking about that middle S of shaping disciples because that middle S of shaping disciples ultimately gives rise to the other two as we shape disciples as we see men and women whose lives are conformed to the image of Christ and their character is transformed and their convictions are solidified into historic Christianity and they get an idea of the gospel and it begins to revolutionize and change their lives. As disciples are shaped, we have a more compelling and a clearer gospel witness and we're able to send forth people who are ambassadors for the gospel or heralds of the gospel or representatives of Jesus into our communities. And so that center S is the kind of mission critical of the church and it has been ever since the church's inception. Right, from the very time that Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples in Matthew 28 when he says, go and make disciples, right? That's the mission that he gives the church, to make disciples. He says, teach them everything that I've commanded you, teach them to obey those things, to order their lives around those things, and I will be with you. So from the very inception of the church, regardless of which generation it has found itself in or geographic location that God has planted it, the mission of the church has always been to make disciples. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to know that you stand in a very long line of disciple makers, <laughs> Like that's why you're here. Is because somebody took seriously the call and commission to share and shape, to share the gospel and shape disciples. Right? We stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us, generation after generation after generation. And as our elders have prayed and thought through this this issue of discipleship over the course of the last four to five months together. We've been praying and thinking and discussing on Wednesday nights, opening up passages of scripture, talking through those things, praying about what it is to make disciples and how do we do that best in our context that God has planted us in. And out of those conversations and those times of prayer and those th- times of discussion, w- several things have risen, and you'll hear about those as we move forward into this fall and into next spring. But one of the things that's come out of those times of discussion and prayer and study has been this series of sermons. And so, over the course of the next several w- couple of months together, we're going to take a look at what it means to follow Jesus. We wanna look and see at, at this Jesus whom we're called to follow, but also what that involves in our lives, what it means for us to do that, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because listen, every one of us in this room is a disciple of someone, right? Every one of us, somebody is setting the priorities for our life, right? Somebody is determining where we're gonna invest our time, where we're gonna invest our energy, where we're gonna invest our resources. There's setting the priority for us. Somebody is communicating to us an identity we should embrace, right? So somebody's setting priorities, somebody's showing us an identity to embrace, and then somebody is helping us to order the activities of our lives as well. So all of us are being discipled. The question is not, are you being discipled? The question is, whom are you being discipled by? Who is setting the priority for your life? Who are you ordering your activities around? Which identity are you embracing and living out? That's the question. And so over the next couple of months, we wanna see what Jesus has to say about what it means to be his disciple. And so we start this morning in this text in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, and we'll be here the next couple of weeks because I couldn't fit it all into one message. I tried, believe me, I did, but I I just couldn't, all right? And so we're going to break it up over the next two weeks to see initially what Jesus says it means to be his follower, what it means to order our life around him. Right, and this text in Luke's Gospel is a pretty pivotal one, and here's why in Luke, in Luke. Because in Luke's Gospel, the first eight chapters of, the, of, of Luke's Gospel are all about the identity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And then the latter portion of Luke's Gospel verses, or chapters nine to 18, are about the activities of those who follow Jesus. What does it mean to put your feet on the path of discipleship and go after him? So identity of Jesus, the activities of his followers. That's how the ver- first eight chapters and then the next eight chapters break down, or nine, 10 chapters break down in Luke's Gospel. For instance, in Luke chapter four, after Jesus has been teaching and he drives out this uh, unclean spirit, this unclean demon from a from a from a person, and the people who are gathered there are like they're amazed because he speaks and he commands these unclean spirits to leave, and they listen to him, and so they're amazed, trying to wrap their minds around who would these unclean spirits listen to. And then Jesus goes on healing and he goes on teaching and he goes on calling disciples to himself and you get to Luke chapter eight and in Luke chapter eight, Jesus stills a storm. And listen, the, the, the account in Luke chapter eight of him stilling the storm is not about Jesus giving peaceful, tranquil waters in our lives for us to float on over the course of the days you know, that we live here on the earth. But that's, that account in Luke's gospel because at the end of it, after he stills and silences all the waves and the winds, the disciples are terrified in the boat. And look at each other and they say who is this that even the natural order listens to his voice and responds and then on the heels of that in Luke chapter 9 all of a sudden the identity of Jesus comes to the front and center as Jesus begins to interrogate his followers about who the people were saying that he was and they say, Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, some of them say, He's John the Baptist. Now, in, at this point in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist has already been beheaded because he confronted one of the kings about idol- infidelity in his life. And so he said, no man, you don't, it did not roll like that with me. He just lops off his head. And so some are saying John the Baptist has come back from the grave. Some are saying it's Elijah. Elijah didn't die, he was caught up on chariots of fire and he just now has returned to have this powerful ministry of healing and teaching. Others say he's one of the other prophets risen of old. He's a resurrected prophet. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Now listen. One of the first things that I want to show you this morning about what it means to follow Jesus, about that we have to get really and in, deeply ingrained in our hearts and minds, is this: is that if you're going to follow Jesus and be His disciple, if you're going to, his, He's going to set your priority, you're going to order your activities around Him, you're going to embrace the identity that He gives you, then you have to know who it is that you're following. You have to know who it is that you're following. Listen, Jesus doesn't call people to follow him until they understand who it is that they're being called to follow. Listen, we, 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 I don't know if you, some of you probably saw the movie Talladega Nights several years ago, right? You had that great scene there at the dinner table where Ricky Bobby's are gathering around the table to eat the meal and Ricky Bobby is gonna lead prayer and he's gonna say grace. Right, you remember, some of you are laughing already because you remember the scene, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but, but what I, it's, it's an, this is this amazing prayer, right, because he prays to this infant baby Jesus in golden fleece diapers with a balled up fist who weighs eight pounds and six ounces because that's how he likes to think of Jesus, right? He likes to think of Jesus as a little infant. Somebody else at the table says, well, I like to think of Jesus with rocking this t- t- tuxedo t-shirt, right? That's my kind of Jesus right there. Another guy says, well, I like to think of Jesus with like angels. Wings ripping a rift on a guitar as the lead singer for Leonard Skinner. That's my vision of Jesus. That's my version of Jesus, right? But Jesus doesn't allow that luxury for us. He doesn't say you can define who I am for yourself, Jesus has an identity that conforms to reality and Peter sees it here in the text. It's revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Other other of the Gospel accounts say, this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, Peter, but by God, by my Father's revealed this to you. The Holy Spirit has given you this insight that you are the Christ of God. And listen, if you and I are gonna follow Jesus, you gotta know who you're following because he doesn't say, you can decide for yourself who I am and then decide how you're gonna follow me. He says, this is who I am. This is who I am, I'm the Christ of God. Now what does that that mean? That means this, Peter's saying that Jesus, you are the anointed one of God. You're the anointed one. Now in the Old Testament, if you trace that language back into the Old Testament, you're gonna see there were three categories of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. You had prophets who spoke the words of God, priests who mediated the relationship between God and his people, and kings who ruled over the people of God. And whenever Jesus, when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ of God, you're the anointed one, he's taking all three of those terms and saying, Jesus, this is you, you're the anointed one, you're the true prophet in the line of Moses who has come to speak truly the words of God to us. Jesus, you're the king who's come to mediate the relationship between us, or the priest, to mediate the relationship between us and God, to offer sacrifice and be the sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews says, not only is he our high priest, but he's offered himself in our place, And he's also the king who rules and reigns and governs and guides God's people with grace and tenderness and compassion and mercy and justice. This is who Peter says Jesus is, that he is the Christ of God. So we don't get to define who Jesus is for ourselves and then determine whether or not we're gonna follow him. Jesus says, here's who I am. Now follow me. Now follow me. And listen, I want you to know something this morning. If, you're, if you've come in here with an, an, an alternative vision of Jesus or a different view of Jesus, Jesus wants to rein that back in and say, here's who I am. I'm the prophet who declares truth to you. And everything that I say is trustworthy. You can bank your life on it and believe it. I'm the priest who has offered a sacrifice for you, not of bulls and goats, but of my own blood, offered up to you at the, for you at the cross to make way for you to have access to the very throne of God, to bring your petitions and prayers before him, to plead before him, to have relationship and intimacy with him. And I'm the king who guides and governs and rules and reigns over God's people with authority and with compassion. That's the Jesus that says, follow me. You gotta know who you're following. But the second thing that I want you to see this morning about what it means to follow Jesus is this. Because discipleship, when you think of discipleship, here's what, here's what we want, to, want you to think about, that it's, in, it's, in, it's embracing a new identity, it's setting new priorities, it's ordering your life around a new hub of activity. Now most of the time when you think of discipleship, you think of just activity, right? Things that I'm gonna do and I follow Jesus. But what your, your activity always flows out of identity. And that identity always comes from an experience and taste of mercy. That's, that's, that's discipleship. There's a flow, a downhill flow, an experience of God's mercy in Jesus, a new identity that he gives you, and now new activity that begins to, your life begins to revolve around. And so I want to start, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at all those things, but I want to start with activity, and we're going to work back uphill a little bit over the course of the next several weeks. We'll start with the activities that, we, that now or, order our lives. And when we think of discipleship, here's what we're thinking of the activities that we're ordering our life around, the, our everyday life around the message and mission of Jesus. That's what it is to be his disciple. That our life is ordered around everyday life, our mundane life, from the time that we wake up to the time that we go to bed, it's ordered around his message and his mission. And what that looks like, are these, these. I want to give you a broad thing that it looks like and a very specific thing that it looks like, ways that it flushes itself out in your life. Here's the very broad one. Jesus says, if you're gonna be my disciple, it means that you have to come after me continually. You have to come after me continually. Now listen, in the gospels, Jesus does indeed invite people to come to him. One of the most famous passages in which Jesus says, come to me is probably Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. When Jesus looks at those who are surrounding him and he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites people to come to him in the gospels. And Jesus is operating in a day in which the yoke wasn't just a farming implement that they put on an oxen attached to the plow to pull across a field to turn the soil over. It was that, but it figuratively came to represent the interpretation of the law that a particular religious leader or teacher had. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had a yoke of the law. They had an understanding and interpretation of the law that said this, here's God's commands. We don't want to come close to violating God's commands. We don't want to come close to trespassing God's commands. We don't want to come close to breaking God's ordinances or rules, so here's what we're going to do. That makes perfect sense. We're going to back up about 10 steps and layer in our own traditions about things that you can and can't do, places you can and can't go, right? And we're going to layer all that in And then, if you would keep these traditions and these commands that we've given you, then you won't even come close to breaking the commands that God has given you. And that yoke of the law was around the necks of the people in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, If you are crushed by the weight of keeping all the traditions and commandments of men, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me to find rest. I want you to come to me to find refuge. I want you to come and take my yoke upon you. What was Jesus' yoke? It was, what did he say? See, here's what the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' day did. They took the commands of God and they teased them all out and added more. Jesus took all the legitimate commands of God in the Old Testament and he compressed them all in. And he said, here's the greatest commandment, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, take that yoke upon you. For that, my, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Now listen. I want to be very clear before we get to what Jesus says in this text. When Jesus says that his yoke is lighter than the yoke of the Pharisees, what he's not saying is this, that his yoke is more manageable than that of the Pharisees. Think about it with me. Which is more manageable, right? To conform your life to an external list of do's and don'ts where everything is clearly spelled out and defined for you Or to love internally with hearts of affection and deep adoration for God and service towards others the way that you would want to be served and the way that you would want to be loved. Which is more challenging? Right? The former or the latter? You can conform your life to a list of external standards, but you know what you can't do? You cannot make yourself love. You can't. So Jesus isn't saying my yoke is more manageable so it's lighter, it's easier. Here's what Jesus is saying. That yoke that I gave you of loving God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna place that yoke on myself. And I'm gonna carry it all the way to the cross where I will be stretched and and beaten and bruised and I will be crushed and killed in your place because I've loved God with everything that I have and I've loved you with everything that I have by laying my life down for you. See, Jesus' yoke is not more manageable, it is more merciful. That's why it's lighter, because he bore it in your place. So listen, Jesus does indeed invite people to come to him and he still does. Jesus, look, if you've you've had exposure and experience in very legalistic and moralistic environments, Where people said, "Like what I said earlier sounds, makes, man, you're like, that sounds very familiar. (laughs) I've been in those places, I've been in those churches, I've been around those people who say, here's God's commands, let's back up five steps, let's layer in our own so we don't even come close to breaking those things. And then if you will keep our thing, our commandments, our traditions, the things that we've layered in, then that'll make you acceptable to God and acceptable to us. And then you can be with us. I want you to know if that's where you're coming from, Jesus stands with arms open wide and says, come to me. Come to me. Because I've taken the yoke for you. And I've loved God with everything that I have. And I've loved you to the very end by laying my life down for you. And you can find rest because my yoke is more merciful. It's not just more manageable. That's good news, isn't it? It is for me, I don't know if it is for you. But Jesus not only calls people to come, invites people to come to him, but those who come to him, Jesus says, come after me. Come after me, and that's what he says in this text. He doesn't say, if anyone would come to me, he says, if anyone would come after me. That word come after literally means this, it means to be a disciple of someone, be a follower of someone, to have someone else as our guide. Showing us the the direction, giving us insight, giving us wisdom, teaching us about life teaching us how is to be lived under the rule and reign of God, by the truth of God as the prophet of God, under the rule of God as the king of God, in relationship to God as the priest of God. He's showing us how life is to work. If we're going to take him as our God and take him as our master, take him as our rabbi, let him be our teacher. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, and the way that he phrases it literally means this, if anyone would come after me and keep coming after me, and keep coming after me day after day after day after day. See, coming after Jesus is a continual coming after. See, there are those who come to Jesus in Jesus' day who went away sad. Or they came to Jesus and went away angry. Or they came to Jesus and they went away disappointed because they had their own vision of what Jesus was and who Jesus was and what he would do. But Jesus says, I'm the Christ of God, the prophet, priest, and king. Here's who I am. Come after me. Don't just come to me. And listen, there are many in our culture who have come to Jesus, but they've gone away sad or they've gone away angry or they've gone away disappointed. Maybe they've come to Jesus kind of like a sideshow attraction, like the three-legged man at the circus, right? There's cool things going on, and I want to see them, right? Or they've come to Jesus just to meet their emotional needs, or they've come to Jesus out of academic interest or just intrigue. They want to be, he's a person to be studied, not a, a God to be loved. And so they go away sad or they go away angry or they go away disappointed, and Jesus says, if assuming that everyone who comes to Jesus would come after him. But Jesus says this, if you want anything to do with me, listen, here's what this means, Like, where's this going, here's what this means. Here's what it means. There is no Christianity without discipleship. There is no Christianity without discipleship. It's not optional. Jesus isn't saying, hey, there are some kinds of Christians over here who aren't disciples, and then there's like the freshman team, right? And then you got the varsity team over here, they are disciples. Right, that's not what he's, not making that kind of distinction. Jesus saying Christianity without discipleship is not Christianity. It is something else. It is something else. And Jesus, to follow means you continually come after him. That's the broad scope. Now let's get very particular this morning and see what Jesus says that means because he doesn't say, if you want to come after me, you get to define what it looks like to come after me. If you want to come after me, you get to determine what that looks like for you, right? I'll just rubber stamp whatever your definition of that is and we'll be good. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, I get to define the terms for what that looks like. And here's where we're going to break it apart this week and next week because there's just too much. And so, This week I want to show you the first term that Jesus lays for those who would come after him as his disciple, those who would come after Jesus as he would be their teacher and guide, he would be their rabbi, he would be their master and lord, he would be mediating, he would be ruling, he would be teaching as prophet, priest, and king. Here's what it looks like. Jesus says if you're gonna come after me, you've gotta learn to side with me against yourself. That's what self-denial is. It's siding with Jesus against yourself. And Jesus says, here's the first term of being my disciple. Let me lay it out for you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now for Jesus to say that, I want you to consider something. For Jesus to say that, there's gotta be a self that is doing the denying and a self that is being denied. In other words, there's a him or her that is doing the denying, and a himself or herself that's being denied. As one pastor put it, I thought rather brilliantly, he said there's a sacred schizophrenia in every person who is a follower of Jesus and coming after him. There's these two selves, one that's doing the denying, and one that's being denied, and here's here's why that is, because although, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, If you're a Christian, right, part of the new covenant promise that God made through the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly in Ezekiel in chapter 36, was to say this, that what God would do is he would remove hearts of stone, he would do heart transplants, take out hearts of stone that were cold and dead and lifeless and unresponsive to God, and he would implant hearts of flesh that were now alive to God and responsive to God and wanted to be obedient to God and love God. Don't love God, I'm a hater of God, I'm a lover of God. That would be, that would be the transplant that God would make in the, in, the, in the hearts and lives of people, of his people. The new covenant promise, but listen, even though if you're a Christian in the room this morning and you've experienced that kind of heart transplant and you went from being a hater of God to a lover of God, you went from being dead to being alive to being in despair and now having hope, you've been born again. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, you've been born again even though there's a heart of flesh in you, you still wrestle with the remnants of your sinful flesh. Don't you? I do. You still wrestle with the remnants of your sinful flesh. And as long as you live, there will be a self that will be called to deny and a self that will be called to be denied. You have a heart of flesh that desires to love God and serve God and honor God and obey God and a sinful remnant of flesh in your life that is self-preoccupied, self-centered, self-directed, and only concerned about what's in it for me. That is two parallel lines that run together for the rest of your lives post-conversion, after coming to faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're gonna come after me, you have to learn to side with me against yourself, not side with yourself against me. He says the very first term of discipleship is self-denial. And listen, when you think of that, some of you in the room are going, well, I guess I just can't have any desires now, right? I can't want anything. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that to follow him means you become this kind of desireless robot who just kind of out of duty moves forward day to day. That's not what he's saying. Jesus, there's some desires that God has planted within you that should be fanned and flame and cultivated and exercised. But there are other desires, sinful desires, desires that make you less and less human and more and more hollow. They kind of carve your soul out. And Jesus says, you gotta learn to say no to those things. You gotta side with me against yourself. And listen, this is not a one-time thing, right? It's not like you walk in the aisle at camp, right? you were kinda holding on to that, that pew back there at one point and finally you step out into the aisle and you shiver your way down or whether you're in church service and you go and talk to a pastor afterwards, and you say, I wanna follow Jesus. It's not a one-time decision that you make. Those of us who believe that it is may have bought into a lie of, uh, that's, uh, that's pervasive within North Texas Christianity. You've heard me talk about North Texas Christianity before if you've been here for a while. It's not New Testament Christianity. And a part of North Texas Christianity, I think Andy Minio is a hip hop artist. He captures it well in one of his songs called Tug of War. And listen to what he says. He says, I wear a cross and give you thanks for my blessings. Ain't that enough? Uh, isn't that all you want from me, Jesus, right? I wear a cross around my neck, and I got this little, like, has a few little sparkly jewels in it, and it's got a nice little gold chain here, and I go to award shows where I'm receiving accolades and applause, and I give you thanks for all the blessings you've given me in my life. I say grace at meals. I wear jewelry, and I give you thanks for all the good things in my life, Jesus. That's really all you want from me, right? Ah, he goes on to say, why can't you leave this part of my life untouched? In other words, can't there be rooms and spaces carved out in my life that can stay in the dark? Can't there be parts of my life in which I can continue to side with myself against you rather than siding with you against myself? Can't there be areas of my life in which I can just have a little bit of privacy, Jesus? Listen, some of you are pretty geeked out right now because you're hunters, and I understand. I'm a fisherman every time February rolls around. I get ready to go hit the lake. Some of you are ready to go to hit, the, hit the lease. Right? There are many people in our community who love to hunt, and they just get all charged up. Bass pros, fall hunting classic, coming to an end this weekend. Today, you better get there if you haven't gone yet. Right? And so you've got to go stock up on ammunition and all kinds of equipment to go out and, and live in the woods. Right? Craig is walking out of the booth as we speak. <laughs> But listen, some of you are geeked up right now, right, you, like, you get home from work and you, you go into your closet and you put on your ghillie suit, right, and you, you paint your face and you spray yourself with deer urine that you bought at the store. Your wife's inside, she's diffusing all kind of oils because it just stinks, right, you go out in the backyard and hide in the bushes with a compound bow draw, drawn to full tension and you're hunting a styrofoam deer on the backside of your privacy fence, hoping the arrow doesn't go through and impale the small dog on the other side. <laughs> You just get geeked up about it. But listen, any any reputable hunter safety course, legal one by the way, uh, or any reputable outdoor mentor is going to teach you lots of things, but one of the things they're going to teach you is there's some places you just can't hunt. Because there are some pieces of property that are private property and along those fence lines or tree lines there are signs that are nailed to trees or hung on fences every 100 feet or so that say posted, no trespassing. Now that owner of that property, that private property, they may be able to enjoy that property, they may be able to hunt on that property, they may be able to fish on that property. Listen, I feel you because there's lots of ponds around here I would love to get my hands on and waste an afternoon next to. But they can use it, but they restrict you from having access. And listen, what Jesus is saying is the very first term of being his disciple is that there can be no parcels of land in your life that are posted. There can be no tracts of land in your life which say no trespassing, no acreage in your life to which you restrict access to God. But every time God crosses a fence line in your life, that you side with him against yourself every time he places a finger on an area of your life, you side with him against yourself. See, there can be no, and this happens day after day after day after day, there can be no areas of your life in which you say, God, just give me a little privacy here. Can't I keep this area untouched by you? That's the very first term Jesus lays out for us. Now let's get even more specific and more particular this morning. Let's talk about some ways this works and fleshes itself out in life. In Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul says, as he contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, he says the works of the flesh, in chapter five, verse 19, he says they're incredibly evident in life. You can see them. And listen to what he says they are. He says there's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he says, and things like these. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. It's an exemplary one. But let's take a few of those examples that Paul gives and consider what it looks like to side with God against ourselves when our flesh starts to itch. Because I don't know about you, but my sinful flesh begins to itch at times. And it's all I can do at times to keep from scratching it. So what does it look like to side with God against ourselves? Let me contrast it for you this way. You side with yourself against God whenever you vent your self-righteous anger. Do you notice what he says? Part of the, one of the works of the flesh that are evident is fits of anger or rage. And you side with yourself against God whenever you give vent to self righteous anger. Some of you have been there before where you're, you, you maybe have these notions that, man, I'm, I'm maybe better than these people, more committed than these people, or I'm, I'm further along, more mature than these people. And so there's these tensions that rise in your heart towards them. And then whenever they fail you, all of a sudden out comes this fit of anger. What is that? That's siding with yourself against God because nowhere in the scriptures are we encouraged to vent our self-righteous anger, but what we are called to do is repent of it. See, what it looks like to side with yourself against God is give vent to your anger and just spew all kinds of toxic stuff over all over anyone who will listen to you. But to side with God against yourself means that you get on your knees before God and you stand before the cross and say that Jesus not only died for those bad people, but for this bad person. And like the tax collector in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel who, who before God won't even look up, just beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, and goes away justified versus the man who says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. See, siding with yourself against God means that you just feel free to vent your anger toward anyone at any time. But siding with God against yourself means you repent of that. Or consider another one, one of the works of the flesh here Paul speaks of is jealousy. And you side with yourself against God whenever you allow jealousy to fester in your life. Listen, one of the ways you can see jealousy rising to the surface in your life is criticism of other people whenever they get an opportunity that you didn't get. Now I don't know if that's touching a little close to home for some of us, but you begin to criticize people whenever they get opportunities that you thought you should have received right, whenever they get promotions at work that you thought you should have, you've worked harder, you've worked longer, you've been around this place a lot longer than they have, you should have received that promotion. You should have gotten that position. And so instead of celebrating with them on the blessing of of the promotion that they've received, you criticize them and cut them down, whether it be to their face or behind their back with other people. And talk about how they're lazy or talk about how they don't, they, they think they know everything. Right. And so that's one of the one of the dashboard lights of jealousy in your life is being critical of other people rather than be able to celebrate with them. It's like the guy who's played in the minor leagues all of his life, right? Never made it past double A and his buddy who started in rookie league with him got called up to the majors three years in and has now had a stellar, illustrious career while he continues to ride buses from stop to stop and town to town in little small ballparks under very poor lighting playing in double in, in, in A versus his buddy who's now playing and be a Hall of Famer one day. Instead of being able to celebrate that, we criticize that. Or somebody who is, God has given victory over sin in an area of their life and you're critical of them, thinking they're holier than thou, or that they're somehow think they're better than everyone. You kind of lay that mantle on them because you're still struggling with sin on your own. Perhaps God has released them from an addiction to pornography that they've been fighting against for a long time and you're still secretly in the closet on your phone constantly perusing pictures and videos so you become critical of other people. That's siding with yourself against God. Siding with God against yourself is whenever somebody else has an opportunity, somebody else experiences a victory, you celebrate that with them. Consider this as, we could go on, right? We could go on for a really long time. Students, consider this. You side with yourself against God whenever you, I know, Whenever you push back and rebel and constantly uh, 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 argue with 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 your family, with your parents, instead of honoring your mother and father and obeying your parents, which is right in the Lord for you, God has ordained life to work that way for you in this season. But whenever you operate as if you know everything and you've experienced everything, you know all there is to know about life. I know none of you guys do that. None of our students do that. Because, I mean, you've lived like 15 years of life versus your parents' 45 years of life. So you must, I I mean, by by extension, you know more than they do. (laughs) But to side with God against yourself means you embrace the wisdom of your elders, of those who've gone before you, who've walked in your shoes, and you honor them by submitting to their authority. That's siding with God against yourself. We side with ourselves against God whenever we mind our idols and serve them, but we side with God against ourselves whenever we mock them. See, some of us have spent a lot of time minding our idols and serving and worshiping our idols instead of mocking them, and there's two in the text in Luke that Jesus points out. One are temporal goods for what would profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And the other idol that you will wrestle with and fight on the front of for the rest of your life as these two selves battle one another is this. It's not only temporal goods, but it's also temporary glory. For as if ashamed of me and of my words, of of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, instead of going to our temporal possessions and looking at our car and saying, you've heard me say this before, you are a useful gift, but a useless God. Or looking at our house and saying, you're a useful gift, but a useless God. Or our, in our closet and all our shoes and clothes, all of our fishing poles and all of our hunting attire and all of our decorations and our subway tile and all that stuff that we've spent hours piecing together the perfect look in our home and looking at it and saying, you're a useful gift, but a useless God and mocking your idols. That's siding with God against yourself, but minding them is building your life around their pursuit and that's siding with yourself against God. That's the first term of discipleship Jesus lays out. How are you doing? Listen, the reason this feels so constricting, in our, does it feel constricting to you? It may. The reason it feels so constricting to you is because you, you and I, we both live in a culture that doesn't encourage self-denial but encourages self-indulgence. In other words, express every desire you have. Give vent to every, every, every whim that you feel. Don't deny those things. Indulge those things. That's the culture in which we live. And so I want to say two things to you as we close this morning. The first one to those of you here in the room who are believers, and the second one to those of you who may be kicking the tires on Christianity, trying to figure out if this is, like, you know, I really want to follow this Jesus. And the first thing I'll say is this, is that there are certain, this, this activity of siding with Jesus against yourself, there's a, way, there's a way that you can begin to train yourself to do that by implementing a rhythm in your life. Listen, whenever I went out for the cross-country team in high school and the very first day of our, of our very first practice, right, I'd run the mile a couple of times in physical fitness tests in PE, but my very first cross-country practice was a three-and-a-half-mile run. And I can remember the end of that run just, I mean, gasping for air, cramps in my side. My legs felt like spaghetti, right? Cooked spaghetti, not uncooked spaghetti. And I can remember at the end of just being exhausted. But at the end of that week, that three and a half mile run was a little bit easier. At the end of that month, that three and a half mile run got a little bit easier. By the end of that season, I was, I was competing for, for all district. By the end of my high school career, I was, I was in the top 5% of the state. But it didn't happen overnight, it happened through training day after day after day after day, week after week after week after week and there were certain rhythms in my life that I had to embrace if I wanted to progress in that. And let me give you a rhythm that you can embrace to help you grow in your capacity to say no to yourself and side with God against yourself. It's the rhythm of fasting. It's a historic discipline in Christianity that people have practiced for years. In fact, Jesus even speaks to it in the Gospels. In in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at this a few months ago, when Jesus speaks about rhythms of prayer and of giving and of fasting, he he doesn't say anything about tearing those rhythms down, but he says, practice and order them rightly. So don't give to be seen by others in the streets. Don't pray very long, eloquent prayers so other people will think that you're very pious. And don't fast in ways that it will be recognized by other people so, because then you have your applause and reward here. But Jesus doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. In other words, Jesus assumes there is some fasting going on in the life of his hearers and he wants to help them understand how to do it appropriately in a way that honors God and is deserving of reward from him, not from the people who are around them. So Jesus doesn't tear down the practice of fasting but he encourages it and teaches us how to do it rightly. And listen, fasting is a discipline or a rhythm in your life that will train you in your capacity to say no to yourself. Because as you say no to yourself in smaller ways, you learn to say no to yourself in larger ways. You learn to side with God against yourself in bigger ways as that capacity is strengthened and elongated. And so here's what I wanna encourage you to do. If you're a believer in the room this morning, I wanna encourage you to, to, maybe you've never fasted in your life from anything, Maybe you've indulged yourself at every turn with every desire. I want to encourage you to consider embracing this rhythm of fasting and begin to train yourself. And maybe this week it looks like you begin to fast from a meal. Right? Maybe one meal, maybe lunch one day this week. Let me encourage you. Don't say I'm going to fast for seven days. Right out the shoot. That, that's not a good idea. Okay? Fast from one meal or fast from breakfast and lunch and then break the fast at dinner. And during that time, take the time that you would have spent eating, right, at Choloso or at Valero or at Chipotle or at Chick-fil-A, at any of those restaurants, take the time that you would have spent eating that food and consuming that rich, delicious goodness and devoted to prayer and to scripture reading and to meeting with God and as you feel those hunger pangs rise, say, God, you are sufficient for me in this moment. There is a, f- there is a bread that, that I never knew about until I began to fast, and say no to myself. Maybe you can't fast physically because of health conditions, so maybe you would fast from social media, you would fast from entertainment. Maybe instead of binge watching the next series on Netflix, that you would take that time and you would devote it to prayer and to scripture and to meeting with God. And maybe instead of scrolling through endless hours of puppy photos and political arguments on Facebook, maybe you would take that time, say no, and open up the word and read and get on your knees before God and pray. Whatever it is that you God would lead you to fast from, that you begin to implement that rhythm in your life and you begin to train yourself to side with God against yourself rather than yourself against God. So what, maybe this week, this week, you would embrace that rhythm of fasting. Now if you're here this morning and maybe, maybe this all sounds very, very, like I said before, maybe constricting to you, here's what I want to say to you. I want you to consider that this coming after Jesus, right, the activity of siding with him against yourself, that that does not make you a Christian, but it flows downhill from Christianity. New identity leads to new activity, right? Not new activity leading to new identity. Look, I I can go out and put on a Cowboys jersey, not really sure why I would, but I could go out and put on a Cowboys jersey, but that does not make me a professional football player. I can engage in that activity, but that doesn't mean my identity is now as a wide receiver or a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Because activity flows out of identity. And an experience of mercy is where we receive a new identity in Christ. And I want you to know that the reason that you that you should feel compelled to come after Jesus is because he has come after you. He's come after you. Listen, back in Luke's gospel in chapter four, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan after he breaks a 40-day fast himself. He's isolated and vulnerable, and Satan comes to him and he tempts him, and the second temptation that he gives him is to worship and serve Satan. The devil tempts him to worship and serve himself And he says, if you will worship and serve me, I will give you all authority and their glory. In other words, Jesus, you can bypass all of the crucifixion. You can bypass all of the rejection, Jesus. You can bypass all of the difficulty and trial, in life, in this life. If you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give you all the glory of all mankind. And Jesus, at his most isolated and vulnerable, says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him alone. Serve him alone. In other words, you know what Jesus does in that moment? He sides with his father against his own human nature. He does it again in the garden whenever he's sweating drops of blood as he prays, God, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, what? What? not my will but yours, i want to side with you against myself, Jesus doesn't have a sinful flesh but he does have a human nature and human nature wants to circumvent rejection, crucifixion and pain but Jesus sides with his father against himself and he does so for the glory of the father and for your good. He takes the yoke of the law upon his neck and he goes to the cross so that you would not just have a more manageable one but a more merciful one. Have you ever seen that and been gripped by the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ? If you had not, have not, then all of this talk of ordering your life around him really makes no sense. But if you have been gripped by grace and encountered his mercy, then it makes all the sense in the world. It's the only rational response. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we come thanking you for your grace and mercy. thanking you for Jesus, who took the yoke of the law on himself, who loved you to the very end and loved us to the very end. And Father, I pray that we would get our minds clear about this Jesus that we're called to follow and what it means to follow him. God, would you help us to see? God, would you take these truths and begin to press them deep within our hearts, God, that we would know and understand that there is no Christianity apart from discipleship? And that, God, if that lands on our palate in a way that is bitter, God, I pray that you would make it sweet by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would help us grow in our capacity to say no to ourselves and yes to you, side with you against ourselves. And Father, I pray that there's folks in the room this morning for whom all of this sounds like a bunch of heavy-handed religion. God, I pray that they would see that your son sided with you against himself for your glory and for our good so that we might know your hand of mercy and not just have a more manageable religious duty. God, that you would break through hearts. God, that you would soften and melt them. And God, that you would raise up a people here at Redeemer who see and savor Jesus and order their lives around him. We pray this in Jesus' name.